Our scripture reading from this morning comes from Psalm 145, starting in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Appreciate that, Emma. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Evan, one of the pastors here, if I haven't met you yet. And uh, you have joined us on uh, message number five of a series in the psalm. There's going to be 13 of them uh, called soul food. And the idea here is that the soul that feeds on the Psalms will feel its effects. And we've been looking at different types of Psalms. Today we are looking at a Psalm of of praise. Now this is the last Psalm that is, you'll notice, of David. So David wrote many of the Psalms, and we don't know when he wrote this, but we do know that this is the last one in the book of the Psalms. And so this is kind of David's farewell. And what does he want to leave us with? And what he leaves us with is an acrostic. And so he took one letter of every Hebrew letter in the alphabet and he assigned a verse to it. And the effect of this is kind of this 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 wall of praise, this river of praise that just sweeps at you. You know, there's a couple different ways that we could approach a psalm like this. It has some really, really tight connections. You could, you could look and break it down and say, hey, this introduces this, and this flows into that, and, and so forth. Or you could approach it a different way, which is how we're going to approach it this morning. And here's why. As I was meditating upon this psalm this week, I received uh, multiple, multiple evidences that, that life can be heartbreaking. Um. Not three reports, not four reports, like six different reports this week. Uh, One of them touched home. My sister, who became a widow about six months ago, uh, had some health complications and went into the hospital, and those turned into more complications, and she ended up staying longer and absolutely traumatized her, her children because the last parent that went away didn't come back. And so as she began to work through that, we got some other news, um, there's a family that's been under uh, a, a fair amount of duress and uh, received a, a cancer diagnosis to the person that was holding the family together. 
I had a classmate um, that has blessed the church with his music and his gifts. Uh, My wife often plays his pieces for the other church. He was killed in a car accident this week. Another classmate that we both went to school with had a 17-year-old, a healthy 17-year-old, caught the flu, migrated to her heart. Doctor said, we've never seen a child so sick. She passed away this week. I've listened to stories this week of people who have, have baffled specialists who cannot relieve the pain. People who have exhorted to, resorted to experimental medicine for the life of their loved one because they don't have any other answers to turn to. And I'm about to preach a message on praise. And that'll make you stop and think. You know, uh, Job, that Old Testament saint, you may or may not know the story, uh, one of the most ancient saints in the Bible, when he received the worst news that you could possibly get, his response is this. He fell on his face and he worshiped. And he said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will return naked. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or you could say, praise the Lord. And I thought, you know, have you ever felt like you were like one piece of news away from making your praise cave in and feel hollow? I thought, I want to have faith like Job, that if I received the news that some people are receiving right now, that my response would be one of worship. And so... We need the type of faith that is going to be able to survive whatever life brings. And that's not going to happen in 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. That's not going to happen because you take this psalm and you, you know, rip it out, so to speak, and you carry it around with you like a talisman. This is going to be a lifetime of cultivating this awareness and trust in a God. But this psalm is going to show us what that looks like. And so how we're going to approach this today, this psalm is a river. It is a, have you ever ever stepped in some fast-moving water and you didn't count on how fast it was and it took your feet out from under you? This one's going to do that. This is going to actually sweep our feet from under us and we're just going to let the river pull us along for a little bit and we're going to follow uh, his train of thought because we need, we need reasons overwhelming reasons to praise God so that we can continue to do so even when we're facing our fears. And so how many reasons do you need to praise God? Three? Four? Five? How many reasons do you need? How about nine? Nine reasons to praise God in your fears. And you're like, wow, having um, there are kids present, you know, like, uh, you know, how long is this thing going to be? Don't worry, we'll, we'll keep moving. We'll keep moving. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this, all right? We're going to hop in the river and just like be swept along. Ready? Here we go. Number one, grace to sinners. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, this may sound familiar. This is a super quoted verse um, all throughout scriptures. This is from, uh, we first heard it in, in Exodus 34, where the man of God, Moses asked God, show me yourself. Tell me who you are. And God passed before him, and these are the words that he said. This is a major statement of who God is. 
And so what does God lead off with? I am gracious. I am full of grace. And that is important because this, you let God define himself, and what does he say? I'm gracious. And uh, some of us kind of have like a, a general feeling about what grace is, and maybe you've heard the old tried definition that grace is unmerited favor. And it's pretty hard to improve on that. It is God's favor in we, even when we deserve wrath. And that's why I say that God's grace is to sinners. Now, um, he leads off with this, and it's telling. So, so if you say, God, who are you? What do you want us to know about you? He says, I give undeserved favor to sinners. It's very, very closely tied to the second thing, merciful. Merciful is sometimes translated compassion. And it is very closely tied to a word that means guts or womb. And so basically the thing that is closest, like deepest inside of you, God says, I am full of compassion. In other words, the distress of my creatures moves me. In fact, it moves me so that I want to do something about it and relieve them. This is exactly what Jesus had when it says that he surveyed the crowd and he saw them as sheep not having a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion. In other words, it gripped him. It's an intense word. So God, what do you want us to know about you? Well, I give undeserved favor to sinners, and I deeply feel the need of people in pain. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. Uh, you know, I used to hear, I, I grew up in kind of in a Christian subculture, and I heard a lot of preachers, and uh, something that came up where it just occurred to me that this may not be well known, so I'm going to have to, you're, you're going to have to tell me this, if you have ever heard this concept, all right, just by a nod or a hand or whatever, backsliding, all right, a few all right, yeah, that's a, that's a Christian subculture word. All right, really colorful. Um, so basically the idea is you're walking in grace, you're walking in God, okay, and then you fall. And it's very closely tied to the slippery slope argument. And you, and you begin kind of like sliding backwards and you just lay there. And before long, you are far away from God and you don't know how you got there. You have backslid. Now, slow to anger is connected to backsliding because... It indicates that God's rod of correction for one of his saints will come. God disciplines his people, no question about it, but he is slow to anger. It's a long time coming. And that's how he treats all people. He gives them time to repent. It is not his first impulse. His first impulse is gracious and compassionate. And finally, abounding in steadfast love. We spoke about steadfast love a couple weeks ago. That, that, um, and the idea is that his anger only will stay around as long as it needs to drive his people to repentance. In other words, he doesn't overdo it. And Brandon spoke of this last week where you have these cycles of repentance. They would sin and then God would discipline and they would cry and then he would redeem them. That is the pattern. God disciplines enough to bring his people to repentance. Well, that's a mouthful. A reason to, to praise God all the time is his grace to sinners. We could stop there, really, but the river just kind of sweeps us along. Verse 9, he is good to all. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Good is 
something that's a little bit, we kind of know it when we see it, but it's hard to define, right? But, but good is something that provokes a favorable response from us. We, we experience it and we say, oh, that's good. Uh, if you've ever been to Longwood or, or the white clay and you walked around, you see a flower that you hadn't noticed before, and you say, wow, I have never noticed it before. Look at that. That is amazing. It's intricate. If you finally, we're almost in tomato season, you know, you get that vine-ripened tomato, right? And you take and you slice a big old thing, you put on toast with some mayonnaise, and you say, that's good. It tastes good. If we watch an athlete, we say, that's a good athlete. That's a skillful athlete. Um, All of these things are good. If we say that she was a good person, she was a good person, what are we saying? We're saying that she had beneficial, beneficial effects on the people around her. We're going to miss her. She was a good person. Well, the Lord is good, benevolent, provokes a favorable response from his creation. You could say, all of these things, that color makes me ache. The, that good Samaritan restored my faith in humanity. These are all things that God arranges for the good of his creation. You know, you even think about the seasons, each one has its delights. Why does God make four seasons? You're like, well, I came from a place that has like three. Okay. Well, these seasons here, though, each one, like even a stark skyline with bare trees against a steel gray sky has its own type of beauty. And we organize our lives around these seasons. Ice cream just tastes better in the summer. We have rhythms and seasons, and God says, I did that because I am good. It is for my creation. Notice that God is good to all, old, young, rich, poor, deserving, undeserving, Christian, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, it doesn't matter, he is good to all, and those that curse him are using his air, and he lets them so they may have time to repent and turn. You know, I'm told that that grief can dull your senses of enjoyment. Things literally don't taste good anymore. But I'm also told that sometimes the light surprises and breaks through. And you realize once again that God is good to all. Three, being one of his works. Another reason to pray for God, being one of his works. What do I I mean by that? Um, All his works shall praise him. Not just some of his works, all his works. Everything that's in existence. Everything that wasn't but now is. Everything that was brought into being by his creative word, praise him. The biblical account is this. In the beginning, we find this in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, regardless of the different views that may be in this room about, is this a six-day creation, literal? um, Where does evolution fit into this? All these different questions. uh, What is the age of the earth? All Christians should be able to affirm this, that creation is an act of God by which he brought into existence everything by his creative word. But how do these creations, these works of God, praise him? Well, they praise him in the sense that they declare his handiwork. Even somebody who would say, like, I'm an atheist, still praises God and declares God. Why? Because even the mind, the sharp mind that they use, the words that they think, they're thinking about thinking. They're thinking about being. 
These are all parts of the images of God. How does, excuse me, the image of God. You know, and so you ask a question here. We have a few kids in here. All right, kids? Let me, I got a question for you. How does a rock praise God? Little riddle here. A rock praises God by its rockiness. How does a fish praise God? By its fishiness. How does a tree praise God? By its treeness. Boy, we could just do this all day, couldn't we? You know, everything declares the work of God by what it is. There's one of the men in the church who occasionally will show me a picture. His son is a very skilled cabinet maker, so, so he'll show me a new setup that he's done in the house. And like, so this man is proud of his son. This son is proud of his handiwork, of its design, its function. It praises him. It declares his works. That is how all things declare God's praise. Now, if you are a believer in God, According to this verse, it says, and all your saints shall bless you. So saints have an additional privilege of blessing God with our awareness. So how do we bless God? Well, as he shines his light on us and we acknowledge it with our words and with our works, we shine off his light to a watching world around him. And so we reflect it to him, we bless God, and we actually magnify his light to those around us. That is how his creation blesses him. So against our doubts, no matter what you are going through, comes the joy of knowing you are a creature and you can bless him. Four, his rule. The verses here, there's a couple of them, speak of his kingdom. Speak of the glory of your kingdom, listen to these words, tell of your power, make known the children of men your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, dominion endures through all generation. His rule is glorious. Now, if we've never been a part of a kingdom, uh, we're at a disadvantage. I think we spoke of this a while back. Uh, a glorious kingdom just doesn't bring up many images for me. Does it, does it bring it for you? Like, what are we talking about here? Glory and kingdom. Uh, I feel like we kind of have to go back to square one and ask a few questions. So what is glory? Well, glory is an outshining of some attribute. So it, it, it becomes very visible to somebody who is watching it. And, and different things have glory. So what is the glory of an athlete? Their stamina Maybe their physical presence. You're like, wow, that guy is big. Or wow, she is fast. What is the glory of a cheetah? The cheetah's glory is it's the fastest land mammal. Uh, What is the glory of Mount Everest? It is the tallest mountain above sea level. So it it is the attributes of something that is shining through. And so what is the glory of God's kingdom? His power... His mighty deeds. So God has been establishing this through mighty deeds and his splendor. But what kingdom are we talking about here? The kingdom is God's acts in history in which God establishes his rule on earth by defeating his enemies. Now, how does he do that? Well, for one thing, he creates this, this, this sphere that we live on, this speck floating around in space that that supports life, and we can't find another place that does it. He created that, and he sustains it. 
He doesn't destroy it. He showed us just a little bit in the Genesis account of what happens when he releases everything in the flood. And, and, and he's holding all this together. So he establishes an earth and then he populates it. He chooses citizens before the foundation of the world. We find this in Ephesians 1.4, where before the world began, before the foundations of the world began, he was choosing citizens to populate this kingdom. And he rules over realms that, that everybody comes about in his, that, that follows his purpose. So any king that has ever lived, any tribal leader in the Amazon, they all are under his reign. Scripture also speaks of his reign, not just on earth, but in heaven. There are spiritual beings that we cannot see, and there are myriads of them, and he rules them. Even his enemies, Satan, and the spiritual powers, they try to resist his will, but when God demands it, they yield up their spoil, and there are new citizen kingdoms. So his reign is glorious, and it is everlasting. It lasts forever. This speaks about its duration, Kingdoms rise and fall. Presidents have, what, four years, eight years? Queen Elizabeth had, you know, the second had 70 years, which was, was almost unheard of. Uh, but kings come, kings go. You know, if you were in, uh, I think this is a standard middle school or high school reading, but uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote Ozymandias. And it tells about this guy that's like exploring and, and he comes across this pedestal, just these two legs in the desert, and there's a face buried in the sand. And on the pedestal, these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the sands, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You know, this almost taps into a biblical account of a, a mighty king, Nebuchadnezzar, who God humbled before him. And when Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, he quotes this psalm and says that God's kingdom will last through all generations. All generations speaks of our experience of it. it it's kind of amazing the way that time wraps in on itself. And, and my God is Paul's God. Your God is Moses' God. The great Christians of history, Paul Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, that is our God. You see, it's just like bridges all generations. That's one of the reasons his kingdom is so glorious. And so in the face of our doubts, the fact that we are under his rule and are part of his kingdom moves us to praise despite whatever is happening around us. Now, let's just... Just pause for a second, all right? That was number four, all right? Those were actually the hardest ones, all right? So it's going to be like down some nice rapids from here. Um, we're going to get there. But, and also, if you're like, I, I can't take notes fast enough, listen, um, we're just kind of marching through chapter, you know, verses eight. It's not going anywhere, all right? So you can, you, you've got a lifetime to begin to imbibe this. So just, just hang on. Here we go. We're, we're still a-moving. Ready? Number five, he helps the inadequate. He helps the weak. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. I think this speaks about two things. Saints who are struggling with the effects of sin, because you can't escape it, and trouble. So the picture here again is kind of going back to that backsliding idea. So let's say you do fall 
All right? You fall into that sin that you struggle with yet again. The fact that God upholds all who are falling shows us that he is going to hold you. He will not let you plunge to the bottom. He will hold on to your faith. Sometimes this is called the doctrine of preservation. This is how God works. He upholds those who are falling. You will not plunge to the bottom. And he will lift up those who are bowed down. So you are walking around and you are burdened under your sin. You are burdened under the trouble. Yet we have a God who comforts you. Sometimes he doesn't take you out of it. Sometimes he comforts your soul. He supports you through it. He gives you strength that you didn't even know that you had. And sometimes he delivers you from it. Hey, if you're wearing a red shirt, kids, did you have any tough time, um, tough times during uh, VBS? I mean, I saw some bumps and bruises. There were some Band-Aids passed out. When we were hitting around that big thing, I saw a kid catch an elbow in the mouth, you know, and he was, you know, checking. And, uh, and, and did you find out that if you, you called out to a teacher, to an adult, you said, hey, I, I got a cut, I need a Band-Aid, or, or I, I fell down, I, or help, or I know I didn't use the restroom when I was supposed to, I need to go now, and what did they do? Did they chastise you, or did they say, here, sure, I'll help you? Well, I hope they, they helped you, right? <laughs> um, if you don't, talk to Miss Barbie afterwards. But guys, God does that too. He is not so busy holding the earth together and advancing his universal kingdom to stop being who he said he was in verse 8. He has time for fallen sparrows and fallen people. Six. Food for all living creatures. The eyes, I want you to note that word, eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. I want you to see eyes and hands. You know, I want you to think now of of a well-trained dog, all right, of whatever breed you like. Um, I've got a lab in my mind, all right? And I want you to imagine a well-trained dog sitting, all right? And the master has the object of all good things, all good desires, a milk bone, all right? And this dog is sitting there. What are his eyes doing while he's watching the master's hand holding the milk bone? Just, I mean, that is the picture of desire, and that's what eyes are. The eyes of all look to you. God has what we need, and his hand is open. So, you know, one movement of the master's hand and the fur friend's dreams come true, right? Notice that it's not just dogs. This is every living creature, including me and you. This speaks of God's provision. Notice that they look to you. You know, we learn here that, that the Bible just does not leave anything outside the realm of God's control. If there's anything that, that maybe God would, say, delegate, it might be the natural processes. Like just say, hey, we'll just wind these up and just let them go. But no, the eyes of all look to you, God. So if you have the question, who feeds the animals? God feeds the animals. That is the answer to this. And so it is God who does them. He feeds them. And he does this a lot of times through their instincts. If uh, we've, we've got a feeder outside our house, um, and we like all the little backyard birds, we never really cared for the grackles. 
You guys know what grackles are? You know, the big, obnoxious black birds that just come and, like, beat each other up. And, you know, it's crazy. Um, we've gotten a little bit lazy, and we've been letting the grackles eat, too, recently. And uh, the other day, we noticed there was a, there was a larger, it, it, was, it was slightly smaller, slightly different color, and it was behaving very oddly. It was making very loud sounds, and, and on the ground, with its furs, re- feathers ruffled, ruffle, excuse me, rustled, and its mouth was open. We're like, what is wrong with that bird? And a second later, one grackle started scooping seeds out of the feeder onto the ground. Another grackle picked it up and was putting it in the mouth of what turned out to be a, an adolescent grackle. Man, that was a big baby, no question about it. But... I was just kind of curious, who taught them this stuff? You know, who taught them this stuff? Well, I think the answer is God gave them these instincts. The verse goes on to say he gives them their food and satisfies their desire. He doesn't frustrate them. This happens a gazillion times a day in all the oceans and Serengetis and everywhere else. The animals are confused about where their food is or what it is. They know what their food is. They stir themselves, they hunt, they peck, they lie and wait, they bury themselves in sand and pass out, they weave holes. I mean, they know what their food is, and God places them so that they can find it. Notice that he does so in due season. His wisdom appears in the times and season in which life comes and goes. You know, the circle of life. No, who made the circle of life? Salmon know it's time to spawn again. Geese know you start honking and forming V's in the, in the fall. Uh, monarch butterflies fly off to where? Angangueo, Mexico, right? I learned that from uh, Little Einsteins, I think. Um, old animals die. New ones are born. You know, if you need reason to praise, no matter what you're in, go spend some time with nature and look at it. And the beauty and chaos that you will see will point you to a God that cares for sparrows. And he cares for us too. Number seven, he is righteous and kind. Or is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. You know, one of the tough things about being a boss or a parent or really anybody who has anybody depending upon them is, is being consistent and kind. Well, here we have a God who administers good things to the weak, all of his creation, and his character drives his conduct. He does it always with perfect consistency and perfect kindness. We kind of think of righteousness and kindness as opposites, that God's either righteous, in other words, passing down harsh judgment, or else he's kind. But they they aren't unrelated. God sets down the standards. Indeed, he does set standards for us and for himself. But then he administers those standards in the most righteous kind way possible. Notice that it's in all his ways. He's predictable. He doesn't act right and kind in some ways, but not always. And, and, and here's one of the ways that we struggle, okay? So his righteousness and kindness extends to things that, that it doesn't extend to us, all right? So God has, can do stuff that we can't do. God can take life. He's the only one who can take life Um, Whenever he sees fit, this is actually what it means to be God. 
He can act autonomously without consulting anyone higher than himself. We can't. And he also judges. He makes distinctions, as we're going to see in the next verses. So these are ways. We can mirror God's image in so many ways. But these three things we have to be very, very careful about. They are his territory. So even when you do not understand all his ways, you can praise him for his consistency and kindness, even if you don't happen to understand it at the moment. He answers those who pray. I want you to notice the word near. The Lord is near to all who call on him. You know, with all this talk about God's greatness, you may think that he's aloof, distant. I don't have access to him, as great people tend to be. You can't get near the president. You can't get near the king of England, can you? Well, his nearness is where his greatness that we've been talking about and his goodness connect. It's not just that he can hear us, that he's within earshot of us, but he's in close connection to. So near is a, is a very rich word, and it's connected to uh, the idea of the kinsman redeemer. So if you've ever read the book of Ruth and that love story of Ruth and Boaz, um, Boaz was a near relative. In other words, somebody who was eligible to go and take all of her debts, all of her burdens, all of her needs, take them and do something about it. That is the kind of nearness that God has for us. Notice there's that word again. He is near to all who call on him. And this is without exception. If there is somebody who we can see, call upon him in truth. In other words, sincere, not cynical, not putting God to the test, but calls on him with a sincere heart and reverences him. Fear, his presence is available. He is near. If you're uh, here and you're wearing a red shirt, VBSers, you know, one of the interesting questions, we, we ask the kids, how, you know, do you know that you're, you're a follower of Jesus? And I noticed something, guys. A number of folks who your age were asking this question. I'm not sure God heard me. I've asked him, but I'm not sure that he heard me. And so we look at a verse like this, where the Lord is near to all who call upon him in sincerity and in reverence. And you can say, he did hear you. He's heard your prayer and he certainly will answer. Now, you may have questions about what to do when it seems that he doesn't hear your prayer, and I think we may address these in the very next one. And guess what? We are at number nine, almost the end of the the river here. He protects those who are his. The word that I want you to note here is the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. I want to talk about what it does not mean to be preserved. One of the part of the experience, God says in Genesis 3.19 that death was going to be a part of the human experience. So to be preserved does not mean, of course, that we won't die. 1 Timothy 3.12 says something very, very shocking. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Chew on that. So, Two things, that no matter who we are, we will not, this does not mean to be preserved, that I will never die, or that I will never receive persecution. But here is what it does mean. What does it mean to be preserved? 
It means that he is going to keep us through affliction. You know, and so much of scripture, we don't have time to look at all the times that God says that he is a shield to those. But what does that speak to? That the affliction is coming at you, but the full impact of it, because of what he's done for us in Jesus, will never fully impact us. Like more stuff is coming at us, but we are protected from it. He is a shield. Also, the scripture teaches he delivers us from our enemies. Sometimes he actually does step in and take you out of the situation. But we know that, like Psalm 23 says, that I am with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with us. So he walks with us and supports us through affliction. Jesus said that he feeds and clothes us. These are all ways that he preserves us. But the big one is this. Psalm 16 says this, that you will not leave my soul in Sheol, the grave. You won't leave my soul in the grave. Um, Neither will his godly one see corruption. So that is spoken about Jesus, but this is true of all who are in Jesus as well. Preservation is actually final. As in, we may go through this life, and of course, death will be visited on us, and of course, suffering will be visited on us, but we will be kept. We will not be left in the grave to rot. Oh, no. God will be with us, and he will bring us to be with him. So, don't mistake preserving your life or living a charmed life, but it does mean that we're shielded, delivered, carried through affliction, provided for, and then finally, eternity. And here's one of God's prerogatives again. Notice the second part of that verse, but he is hostile to the wicked. So the righteous, he preserves. Those who call upon him, he answers. He preserves them and will keep them with him, but the wicked, he is hostile to. And this goes back to verse 17. You may say, I don't like that. He is righteous and he is kind. He sets standards and he administers them in the kindest kind of way and he is remarkably consistent. Those who do not love God, who live in their sin, who follow their lusts, and who reject the sacrifice of Christ will be destroyed without exception, no matter how high they're riding right now. The only escape is to become the one who calls upon God in truth and in reverence. So God's protection is a reason to praise. So you're at the end of a, a tube run here. That's quite a ride. Um, But look at verse 3, if you still have your Bible open. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is, say that with me, unsearchable. David said, we're just getting started. You know, and don't worry, we've got our entire life and eternity to fully realize these things. So I trust that Psalm 145, this psalm of praise, shows you that even in the face of our doubts, there is overwhelming reasons to praise God. If we doubt his greatness, we're going to be doing so over the biblical record that he is, he is ruling and he is right and he helps needy saints and he fulfills promises and he administers justice. If I doubt his goodness, he does so. I doubt it over the record that he is gracious to me as a sinner, that his goodness is to everyone that he helps me when I'm weak, that he provides for everyone, that he answers prayers, and that he protects those who are his and administers justice to those who reject him. So I hope, 
I hope that you are overwhelmed in this river of God's perfection in the best kind of way. I hope that we begin to learn to praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for holy men of old who knew you and captured your perfections. I just marvel at it. David didn't even have the whole of Scripture, yet he walked with you and knew you. Lord, I I pray today for those whose faith is, is under attack right now, who are reeling under things that I could add to that list of six things that I'm aware of uh, many, many times. Lord, I know that is, uh, that is the case today. Father, I pray that you would teach us to praise. Give us the kind of faith like Job has so that we fall on our face and say, you gave and you take away. Blessed be your name. And we worship. So Lord, equip our hearts to sing your praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.